to the Word of God, the book of Judges, this morning, the sixth chapter of the book of Judges, just after Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, come to the historical books, and we've got Joshua, and then the book of Judges, and it's chapter six, and it's a wonderful portion of God's Word, full of encouragement to those who are discouraged, and full of hope for those who maybe Uh, feel themselves to be in a hopeless or a difficult situation. Judges chapter 6. Let's read from the first verse, please. Judges chapter 6, verse number 1. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them dens, which were in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude. For both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt. And brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you. And drave them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But ye have not obeyed my voice. And there came an angel from the Lord and sat under an oak, which was an Ophrah that pertained unto Joash the Abiezrite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? 
And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. And he said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee, and bring forth my present, and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry till thou come again. Ending at verse 18, the reading of God's precious, inspired, and infallible word. Again, we welcome each and every one of you in the Lord's great name. Thank you for coming this morning. And we pray that whoever you are, and whatever your needs might be, that you'll be conscious of the presence and the blessing of God in your soul. If you're visiting with us, you're very, very welcome. May God encourage you especially, and may you feel very much at home in the midst of God's people here. Let's turn again to our Bibles, to the book of Judges, chapter 6. And we've been looking over the last number of weeks at some of those occasions in the Old Testament Whenever our Lord Jesus Christ, before his incarnation at Bethlehem, appeared to some of the saints in the Old Testament in human form. We call those events Christophanies, and there are a number of them that are worthy of our consideration. And today we're in Judges 6 as we think about Gideon and all that concerned him. Our text is really in verse 11 and 12 but we're going to be looking at the first half of the chapter uh, really as a whole. But let's just read verses 11 and 12 as we keep our Bibles open. Uh, Judges 6. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak which is in Ophrah, which pertained unto Joash the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Let's just ask the Lord to really write his word upon our hearts. And in these closing moments, let's pray that God will speak. Father, again, we thank thee for the word of God. We rejoice that this is a living book and it is forever settled in heaven. And we appeal now to thee, O Father, to send the Spirit of God, the Comforter, the Counselor, to guide us and to direct us and draw us to the Savior's feet. Pray, Lord, for the help of heaven, for the infilling of the Spirit of God. Pray that every individual today might be blessed and that we all individually and collectively might know the presence of God in these moments. So, Father, we pray for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Hide the preacher behind the cross. Glorify, exalt, magnify, and uplift thy Son. We pray in his name, and for the glory of God alone we ask it. Amen. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was often referred to as the Prince of Preachers. 
And he is one of the most quotable preachers since New Testament times. And one great quote that Mr. Spurgeon made, quite surprisingly, was this. He once said, I doubt the man who never doubts. I doubt the man who never doubts. He acknowledged that all of God's people kind of doubts. And if we never have doubts, then maybe we need to ask questions. But we are living in a day in the evangelical church where we are often afraid to acknowledge and to express that sometimes we do have doubts. God's people can doubt many things. Even as believers, deep down in our hearts, we know what we believe, but sometimes doubts seem to rise to the surface. And the Bible records oftentimes the struggles of the saints in this regard for good reason, because all of us today are prone to doubts, and doubts often lead to discouragements, and discouragements can often lead to defeatism, and defeatism can often lead to despair, and despair sometimes as well can lead to depression. Abraham and Sarah had doubts, and we have looked at some of those doubts in weeks gone by. Mary and Martha, whenever their brother Lazarus fell ill and then died in John chapter 11, it is very evident that they also had doubts. Thomas is often referred to as the doubting disciple. Peter had doubts as well. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, a man after God's own heart, sometimes struggled with doubts. Elijah, the prophet of fire, had doubts. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, was a man also who had doubts. And friends, it's not always that we doubt God, but sometimes we doubt ourselves. And we look into our hearts and we look at our lives and we wonder, is it possible that God could want really to have anything to do with the likes of me? We think about our sins and our faults and our feelings and our infirmities and sometimes our performance as a Christian. And it leads us not so much to doubt God, but to doubt ourselves and to wonder, is God really interested in the likes of me? I believe one of the most wonderful and remarkable verses in the Bible is Galatians chapter 2.20. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And those words at the end of that text are easy to quote, aren't they? The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. But whenever we think about them, they almost seem too wonderful and too remarkable to really be true that the Son of God would ever love us, and that the Son of God would ever give himself for us. Well, we wouldn't deny those words, but sometimes we doubt ourselves and wonder, could it really be true that the Son of God would love me and also give himself for me? Here in Judges chapter 6, we find a good man called Gideon. And yet Gideon had many, many doubts about his calling 
about his ability, and also about the future of the people of God and the future of the nation of Israel. And this chapter expresses many of the doubts that, that Gideon had. And the chapter shows us the need in a nation. It also shows us that God is interested in and God calls and God commissions weak and ordinary people to serve him and to be used in his work. We're looking at this chapter, the first part of Judges 6, and we're thinking especially of the words that we've read again in verses 11 and 12 where Christ appears to Gideon. And so we're thinking about this great Christophany regarding Gideon. And the simple outline we've been using, we're using it again today, the context of it, the characteristics of it, and then the consequences of it. Look at verse number one that introduces us to the context of this Christophany. And the chapter begins with a problem. The chapter begins with a plight. It simply says, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, generally speaking, the days of the judges were difficult days. It says at the very end of the book, in those days there was no king in Israel. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And we are living in a generational lot like the days of the judges, where Jesus Christ is not reigning in the thrones of many hearts, and many are doing that which is right in their own eyes. But you'll notice there in that first verse, Israel's disobedience. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, we're not exactly told in that opening verse what the sin or the evil that they had committed was, but it says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, maybe in the eyes of the nations around them, what they are involved with or involved in was not evil. And maybe even in their own minds and in their own sight, they justified it. But in the sight of God, in the sight of the Lord, they had transgressed and broken God's law. And really today it is what we are in the sight of God that really matters. In Him we live and move and have our being. And all things are open and naked unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And as you study the history of the nation of Israel especially in their wilderness journeys, and then in the book of Judges, and then throughout the reign of King David, and in the days following, the, the time of the kings of Israel and Judah, their spiritual experience is one of peaks and troughs. Sometimes they're on the mountaintop, and they're doing well, and they're worshiping, and they're living close to the Lord, and then they fall into sin, and the enemy comes in like a flood, and they cry unto God for deliverance, and there's reformation, and they rise again, and then they do well, maybe for a generation, and they fall again. And it seems that the experience of Israel spiritually is one of peaks and troughs, and so it is with the lives of many of God's people. Do we not often fall away from the Lord and our walk with Him, commit some sin, and then the consequences of it, 
take hold upon us and we ask God for forgiveness and we reform our lives and we do well for a little while and then maybe we get careless again and we seem to blow hot and cold and sometimes we're somewhere in the middle and we're lukewarm. Israel's disobedience. This was their plight. Then the second part of verse 1 speaks of Jehovah's displeasure. The Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Mr. Spurgeon said on another occasion, God does not permit His people to sin successfully. And that's another wonderful quote. I believe it's true. God does not allow His people to sin successfully. If we are able to constantly sin and enjoy it and live in it and never be chastened or rebuked or corrected, friends, something is radically wrong. God does not allow His children to sin successfully. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. And if God chastens us, He's dealing with us in love and He's dealing with us as children. And here God chastens the children of Israel by raising up the Midianites, a nomadic tribe who went about the regions around about Israel plundering and destroying. And they were rovers, they were wanderers, they were vagabonds, they were nomads. And they just went about plundering whoever they could. And so they did it here with the children of Israel. And it was expressive of Jehovah's displeasure on Israel's disobedience. And then as you go on a little bit further, verses 2 down to verse number 6, you've got Israel's desolation. Verse number 2 says that the hand of Midian prevailed against them. And the children of Israel hid in dens and caves and strongholds, underground bunkers, if you like. And the Midianites plundered them and destroyed them. In verse 5, they took uh, their, 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 their crops and they were impoverished and they came up against the land to destroy it. A great multitude of them that no man could number. And you see there you have the results of backsliding. Old habits that God's people have forsaken and left, if returned to, they often enslave us again and they often impoverish us. So the context of this appearance of the Lord to His Old Testament people, Israel, begins with a plight. And then in verse number 7, there's a plea or there's a prayer. Look at verse 7. It came to pass. After seven years, came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Now they're praying again. They're calling out unto the Lord. But you'll notice that their motive for praying is probably quite selfish. It says they cried unto the Lord not because of their sin, not because of their backsliding, not because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord, but they cry unto the Lord because of the Midianites. Impoverished Israel are now praying. They have lost so much and they want to get it back again and they've lost 
some of their blessings and they're now really struggling and they cry out unto the Lord. And so often we're the same, aren't we? We cry unto the Lord in a crisis. And sometimes it's not because we feel conviction of sin or we've dishonored God or we've disobeyed God, but the Lord has put His finger on something in our lives and it hurts us. And then we begin to pray and say, Lord, will you fix this? Lord, will you restore this? Lord, will you give us back the blessings that we have lost? Lord, will you deal with our adversary? and our affliction, and our adversity, and take away this trial, and take away this tribulation. Now, we should always pray, and we should pray at all times, but sometimes we only really pray whenever we're in a crisis. But if we prayed more often, and with the right motives, we would maybe prevent ourselves being brought into a crisis situation if we really walked with the Lord as we ought. And in answer to their prayer which came as a result of their plight, you'll notice in verses 8 through 10 that there's a prophecy. Verse 8 says, After they cried unto the Lord, the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, an unnamed prophet. Many of the prophets that we read about in the Word of God are named. But there are also many times in the Bible when we read about faithful men of God who were faithful to the Word of God and faithful to the people, and their names are never given. Their names are only known to the Lord. And this is one of those occasions where God raised up an unnamed prophet, a man who is content to let his name perish and simply declare and deliver the message that God has given to a people that are now in great need. And their initial answer to the prayers of the children of Israel came as a word from God. And I believe God primarily answers our prayers by speaking to us and ministering to us through His Word. Now, everybody loves to get a word of encouragement. Isn't that right? Most Christian books that sell well are books that are designed to encourage And we all need encouragement. And we all need at times words of comfort. And everybody likes to be encouraged. But sometimes we need to be rebuked before we can be encouraged. Sometimes what we need is blunt reality. And that's what the children of Israel needed here. God, yes, was going to encourage them. God was going to answer their prayers. God was going to forgive them and meet them at the point of need. But before God intervened and raised up a deliverer in Gideon, he sends an unnamed prophet who simply comes with a word from God and he reminds the children of Israel in verse number 8, God brought you out of Egypt. God brought you forth out of the house of bondage. God delivered you from the Egyptians. God drove out your enemies before you. God gave you the land. God said, I am the Lord your God. God said, fear not. And God has blessed you again and again and again and again. But at the end of verse number 9, he says, but you have not obeyed his voice. And the problem is disobedience, blunt reality. Now, we all like, as we say, to be comforted, and we all like to be encouraged. We all like to get a a verse where God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. 
and my peace I give unto you, and I'll provide for all of your needs, and I'll strengthen you, and I'll provide for you, and I'll help you, and I'll get you to heaven, and I'll bless you, and I'll bless your children, and I'll bless your families, and I'll bless the work of your hands, and my grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness, and I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again, and I'm going to just lead and guide and direct, and we love to receive all of those wonderful promises. But sometimes we need to take the Word of God on the chin, and we need to take it to the heart, and if we have sinned against God, we need to acknowledge it. That's why James said that we are to receive with meekness or humility the engrafted Word of God, which is able to save or able to deliver the soul. And God's word here to Israel initially is a word of rebuke. And then we have the Christophany. And so verses 1 through to 10 show us the context of it. And then verses 11 through to 16 show us the characteristics of the Christophany. Verse 11 says, An angel of the Lord came and sat under an oak. Verse 12, The angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee. Now that this is the Lord himself is evident from verse number 22 and 23 where Gideon is filled with fear and says, I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face and the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Now there's nowhere in the Bible that says men die whenever they see an angel. But the Bible does say, no man shall see God and live. And now Gideon knows in his heart that this is a manifestation of the Lord, and I could die as a result. And he recognizes that the angel of the Lord, as you have noted in weeks gone by, is really the messenger of the covenant, and it's a pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what we have here in the appearance of the Lord to Gideon is the call of God in the life of Gideon. And maybe there's somebody here this morning or somebody watching in or joining us online and God is going to call you. I wonder, are you willing to be called of God? I wonder if God was to challenge your heart and say to you this morning, I want you to enter into what we might term full-time Christian work. I want you to leave what you're doing and leave the place of your present calling and enter into Bible college or go to the mission field or maybe even locally within your local church, your local assembly. I want you to enter into the place of prayer. I want you to sit among boys and girls and teach a Sunday school class or sit in the children's meeting on a Wednesday night, or get involved in outreach or evangelism, or just open your heart to whatever the will of God would be in your life. And God is in the business of calling individuals. I wonder today, would you be willing to respond to the call of God in your life? You'll notice here in verse number 11, where God found him. Now Gideon is a busy man before the Lord calls him, and I think it's always God's way that he calls people who are busy, calls people who are active. It says at the end of verse 11, Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now that's not just incidental detail. Gideon 
threshed wheat by the winepress. That's an interesting phrase because oftentimes whenever a person went to thresh wheat, that is to separate the grain from the chaff, and they would put it in a, a, a sieve and they would shake it or they would put it in a blanket and throw it up to the winds. They would go up to the top of a hill in order to do that whenever the wind would carry the chaff away. But Gideon is not threshing wheat on the top of the hill where a threshing floor would usually be. He's threshing wheat by the wine press, and oftentimes the wine press was deep down in the valley because grapes and baskets were heavy, and rather than carrying them up to the top of a hill, they would often have a wine press in the valley where the wine would be collected and where the person wouldn't have to struggle upwards, but they could carry the grapes down into the valley. So Gideon is threshing wine in the valley, and that's not a very effective place to thresh wheat. Why is he there? Why is he not on the normal threshing floor in the mountaintop well? Because Gideon is a man who is struggling with fear. He's there hiding from the Midianites. Seven years, he's known nothing but bondage and affliction and barrenness and desolation and no victory. And he doesn't want to be seen by the enemy. And so he's down in the valley. He's in the place of fear. And I'm persuaded as well, it was also the place of frustration. Very difficult to thresh wheat in the valley. Because the valley is not often a place where there's a lot of wind. And there's not as much scope for the chaff to be carried away. And maybe this man's throwing the, the wheat up into the air and the chaff is just coming down on top of him. And it's not being carried away. And it seems that this is just drudgery. It's hard. It's difficult. It's frustrating. And it's fruitless. And that's where the Lord met him. And many Christians today are struggling with fear from the enemy that's coming in like a flood. And others are struggling with frustration and they're down in the doldrums and down in the valley and they think my service and my labor and my work and my life seems to be so barren and so fruitless and my toil and my labor and here I am in the valley. But that's where God found him. Verse 11. And then as you go on to verse 12, you'll notice what God saw in him. Verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thy mighty man of valor. Now some people think that God here is showing that he has a sense of humor. And some have said that the Lord is almost being sarcastic with Gideon. Said, oh, you're some boy, aren't you? You're a real man of valor down there in the valley hiding from the Midianites. I don't believe that God was mocking or being sarcastic with Gideon. I believe that the Lord saw in Gideon what God was going to make him. Here's a man who's fearful. Here's a man who's maybe frustrated. Here's a man who maybe feels that his labor is absolutely fruitless. But God looks at Gideon and God sees in Gideon what God is going to make Gideon to be. And that is a mighty man of valor. And you know, whenever the Lord saved any of us, He didn't save us because of what He saw. We were. We were sinners. 
And he didn't call us because of gift or talent or ability and think, well, there's a, a great man or a great woman that I could use. Look at the gift or the talent or the courage that that individual has. Look how successful they are. Boy, if I could only get that individual to obey my call, I could really use them because they're so talented. No, God looks at individuals. And God sees fear. Sometimes he sees frustration. Sometimes he sees fruitlessness. Sometimes he sees failure. But God looks in and God sees in that individual, there is someone that I can make and mold. And God saw, I can make this man into a mighty man of valor. God, I believe, saw it in him. And certainly it was not how Gideon felt. And it was not maybe what others would have called Gideon. Michelangelo constructed out of marble a 17-foot statue called David. And it's quite remarkable. I've seen photographs of it only, but it's amazing, the detail and the proportions and the structure. And you can see his very fingernails and the separation between his muscles and the veins in his hands and in his feet. It's a remarkable structure. And yet, whenever Michelangelo saw this huge block of marble to be covered in dirt. With the sculptors and the artist's eye, he could see, I can make that into something. And whenever God looks, dear friend, at your life and mine, he maybe looks beyond what the world sees and maybe we feel so worthless and so useless, but it's what God sees in us that he can make us into. Do you remember whenever God called Simon Peter, he said to him at the end of John's Gospel, chapter 1, Thou art Simon, thou shalt be called Cephas, thou shalt be called Peter the rock, the stone. And he saw something in him. Notice in verse 13, what God heard from him. If ever there was a man who was filled with pessimism, it was Gideon. Look at what he says in verse 13. Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this evil befallen us? There's Gideon's doubts. And then he goes on to say, And where be all his miracles which your fathers told of us, saying? There's his disappointments. And then at the end of verse 13, he says, But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. And there's his despair. Here's a man filled with doubt. Here's a man filled with disappointment, discouragement, and despair. If, why, where, now. Those are the, the primary words in verse 13. If God's with us. Where is, is power and why has all this befallen us? And look at where we are now. I wonder if you ever felt like that. Doubts, discouragements, disappointments, maybe even despair. Do we look back to our experience over the last number of years and think, well, nothing has happened. The enemy has come in like a flood. Look at where we are now. And where is this God that our forefathers spoke about? The God of revival, the God of deliverance, the God who intervenes, the God who answers prayer. Where are his miracles? Where is God? Why has all this evil befallen us? But I'm thankful for a man who's honest before God and is just telling the Lord exactly how he feels. Honesty and humility. So in verse 11, you've got where God found him. Verse 12, what God saw in him. Verse 13, what God heard from him. Verse number 14, what God said to him. 
Look at verse 14. The Lord looked upon him. Just as the Lord looked upon Peter who failed, the Lord looked upon him. And that's again how we believe that this is a pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord spoke to him, and the angel of the Lord here now referred to as the Lord. The Lord looked upon him. Didn't rebuke him. Didn't say, well, get in, you know, if you'd only trusted me a bit more, and if you'd only had more faith, I was going to use you and call you and commission you to be my deliverer and a savior for the nation of Israel. But since you're so filled with unbelief and disappointment and discouragement and your faith is so small, I'm going to move on to somebody else. God does not rebuke him. But rather the Lord calls him and the Lord commissions him. See, God does not call perfect people. And God does not always call men of great ability. Sometimes he does. But the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, Not many mighty men are called. Some are, but not many. And not many wise men after the flesh are called. Some are, but not always. But God chooses the foolish things. And God chooses the weak things. And God chooses the things that are despised. Hudson Taylor at the end of his life's journey says, God was looking for the weakest instrument that he could find, and he found Hudson Taylor. God said to him, go in this thy might. That's boldness. Get in, I want you to be bold. You mightn't feel bold. You mightn't feel brave or courageous. But be bold. It's a commandment. Shake off your guilty fears. Stop looking inwardly. Stop looking backwards. Start looking upwards. Go in this thy might. Be bold. Thou shalt see of Israel. There's blessing. Have I not sent thee? That's bolstering. Have I not sent thee? Already in the mind of God he has sent Gideon. Notice in verse number 15 what made God choose him. Now, we believe today that God is sovereign and God always calls and commissions people in grace. But there's a sense in which God looked at Gideon. God says, well, there's a man who feels unworthy. There's a man who feels unqualified. There's a man who is unknown. There's a man who does not have a high view of himself. Because in verse number 15, Gideon says, wherewith shall I save Israel? How could I possibly do it, Lord? Look at my family. My family are poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. I come from the smallest tribe. I come from a poor family, and I am the least and the lowest in my family. God again uses weak people. And it seems that Gideon was very slow to believe that God could ever call and God could ever use him. And I feel that many young people struggle with the call of God in this very regard. Who am I that God would use me? How could I ever be used of God? Who am I that I could ever point people to the Lord or preach the Word of God or tell others about Christ or get involved in the work of God in some way? There are better people. There are more gifted people. There are more talented people. There are people out there, and boy, they've got great intellect and great ability and great influence and maybe great financial clout, and they're in a great position in society. And if God was to save them and call them and use them, they could do something great. But who am I? 
I come from a small tribe or a small church or an unknown family, and I'm the very least within my family. I can remember, and I don't talk about it all that often, but I can remember whenever God began, I believe, to speak into my heart and life. I struggled with it for about three years before I ever spoke to about anyone openly. But I just thought, well, how could God ever use the likes of me or call the likes of me? Look at my faults and feelings and my lack of ability and my record previously, even as a believer. Notice verse 16, what way God assured him. God assured him by promising his power and his presence. Verse 16, the Lord said unto him, surely I will be with thee. One man with God is a majority. Gideon, I'm not sending you on your own. I'm not sending you out there to report back whenever you stand someday at the great throne of judgment and I'll ask you then, Gideon, how did you get on? No, he's saying, Gideon, I'm going to go with you. Every single step of the way, Gideon, you're not going to be on your own. The Almighty God is going to be with you just as I was with Moses and as I was with Joshua. Gideon, I'm going to be with you as well. Underneath, round about, are the everlasting arms. My presence will be with you. And in his presence there's fullness of joy and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And if you've got the presence of God, friends, you've got everything. Moses said, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not up thence. I think we have fallen into a very dangerous trap in the evangelical church that we're so, so concerned about numbers and so concerned about popularity and stimulants. We've lost, perhaps, a hunger for the presence of God. Meetings now are governed and gauged by numbers and multitudes. Well, did you have a good meeting in the Lord's Day? Yeah, we, how many were out? What church do you go to? How many go to your church? How many are there on a Sunday morning? How many members do you have? How many come out on a Sunday night? How many come to the prayer meeting? All of these questions, and if it, if it reaches a certain bar, well, let's say that's quite good. But friends, what about the presence of God? One man with God is a majority. God's presence would be with him, and God's power would be upon him. Verse 16, God goes on to say, And thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. The power of God is always available for those who respond to the call of God in their lives. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. You don't need to be afraid of God's calling you to serve Him in some way. His presence will be with you. His power will be with you. And let's finish by just looking at the consequences of this Christophany. Very quickly, you'll notice in verse 17 through 21, Gideon sought a sign. Verse 17, if I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Now, friends, the Word of God is always enough. God is not obligated to go beyond what He has said in His Word to show us that He's certainly with us. The Word of God is enough. But Gideon isn't so much doubting the Word of God. I believe he's doubting himself. Could this really be happening in the likes of, in, 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 to the likes of me? We often feel weak. 
We often feel fearful. We need a token for good. And God did not despise his desire. It says in verse 19, Gideon went and he had ready a kid and unleavened cakes of an ephah flour. He put the flesh in the basket, broth in the pot, brought it under the oak and presented it. Verse 20, The angel of God said unto him, Take the flesh, the unleavened cakes, and lay them upon this rock. Poured out and he did so. And the angel of the Lord put forth the end of his staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and unleavened cakes and there arose fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened bread. And all of a sudden now Gideon knows because of this simple sign I have discerned and heard the word of God aright. God has shown me a token for good. Gideon saw the sign. But you'll notice also in verses 23, 22 and 23, Gideon reverenced the revelation. It says, Gideon perceived that this was an angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And he reverences this revelation. And he worships. And he acknowledges, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the angel of the Lord. And the Lord assures him, Thou shalt not die. And Verse 24, and here we finish, Gideon assembled an altar. Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. The establishment, the assembling of an altar, a place of prayer, a place of worship, and a place of sacrifice in his life. Do we have such a place, friends, in our lives? We're ever going to see God work and see God move and fulfill the claims of the gospel and the calling of God in our lives. How important is the altar in the life of a Christian? The place of prayer, the place of worship, the place of sacrifice. Do you have such a place in your life? Do you have such a place today in your home? Gideon named the place the Lord is peace. He didn't have much peace in the first half of the chapter. He was filled with doubt, filled with discouragement, filled with despair. But then whenever he met the Savior, he met the Lord afresh. There was a peace that rose up within his heart. May God help you and help me today if God is speaking into our lives to really respond to the call of God. May God bless you. May God encourage you. May God take you up and use you, and may God use me, use us all in these days. May God bring deliverance to our homes, deliverance to our city, deliverance to our nation, and may God be pleased to bless and move by His Spirit.